most of our manufacturers are producing terabytes of data, maybe even weekly or monthly, if not certainly annually. So they've got this huge asset that they've never utilized, right? So when you think about, say you're running millions of hours of production time on equipment, and you've got all this data that no one's ever been able to take and say, hey, we didn't realize that at step two, we were getting data signals that were causing failures at step seven. And we're responding at step seven to the problem that we're having, but we didn't realize we've got this rich river of data that we can mine and understand and do the predictive modeling. So for me, usually our conversation with the customer start at the data estate. Right? Do you have the data? If you do, is it usable? If not, how do we get it in a usable state? So you kind of line up what data do we have against what the company's priorities are, and it usually gives you a fairly rich set of opportunities to evaluate and go after. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Data Binge Podcast. I'm your host, Derek Russell. And today you'll be excited to hear that this is the first of a multi-part segment where we focus specifically on Industry 4.0, which is the emergence of a novel epic in human productivity and innovation where cloud technology, so things like predictive maintenance of machines and IoT devices with computing power at the edge, and automation come together to augment the human worker. Most of the conversation will be around the digital transformation of manufacturers, specifically in the high-tech space. So you can think about everything from semiconductors to automobiles, and the conversations go beyond to the applicability of process improvement and the business imperatives that we see moving across these different manufacturing businesses on a national scale today. Greg Vigil joins us today on the show, and Greg is currently an industry solutions director. He's leading a team of data scientists, solution architects, and business strategists within the manufacturing vertical here at Microsoft, an enterprise customer-facing organization. And his team is currently focused on helping manufacturing customers on a national scale with adopting novel business models to create opportunities that align with the digital economy and innovation that we're seeing currently and with a lot of the different conversations that we have here on the podcast. I really wanted to have Greg on because he had some great experiences that predate his tech career at an organization called Gates Corporation. It's a global manufacturer of power transmission solutions. And he worked there for about 14 years, doing everything from owning a multi-million dollar P&L to being chief of staff to the CEO, as well as holding the position of VP of marketing and commercial sales. So crazy, phenomenal experience. And as you'll see, He'll demonstrate some of his leadership experiences on the chat today. We cover everything from how manufacturers should be looking to harness their most valuable asset, data, to what it takes to go beyond the proof of concept stage into developing production-grade solutions at the shop floor level that meet process improvement goals. So an incredible amount of information today. Greg is a wonderful person to listen to. And he has a lot to say and to add to the conversation. So thank you so much for listening. And if you are consuming this on iTunes, please rate the show and or leave a comment. It helps me craft future episodes that are valuable for you all. And now I bring you Greg Vigil. Hey, Greg, how you doing? 
Doing great. Hey, thanks for joining the podcast show today. Really excited to have you on. I know of you since uh, I work with a lot of manufacturing customers and you and your organization has come on and helped out tremendously in trying to help some of these customers realize some of their biggest business challenges across some of the technology stacks that we offer. So really great to have you on and uh, hopefully we can dive into some really fun stuff today. So tell us a little bit about your career at Microsoft, how you got here and maybe some things that predate Microsoft. Yeah, so I've been at Microsoft just over five and a half years, which is odd to say because it's gone like a snap. I mean, it moves fast here, obviously. But last two years, I've been focused on the manufacturing conversation. So I work with the largest manufacturers in the U.S. and helping them understand digital transformation. Spent three years in our productivity space. That's where I first joined Microsoft via some of my connections who I'd worked with when I was at a customer. And then the relevance, the reason I ended up on our manufacturing team is I spent 14 years at a, a large global automotive and industrial manufacturer here in Denver called Gates Corporation. So belt, hose, and hydraulic manufacturer. <clears throat> and there I spent my 14 years in a number of different roles. My last role was VP of marketing and commercial services. So I was responsible for our, our customer-facing groups in the industrial space. But also had a, a great opportunity there. I spent um, two years running a business unit in South Carolina. So I was responsible for our timing belt business. So I got my hands dirty and uh, worked on the shop floor with, with some of our employees down there. So I got that experience. Prior to that, I spent two years in IT. That's how I got to know Microsoft and some of my connections um, and put in a global infrastructure for collaboration. Prior to that, two years as chief of staff to the CEO, so probably the funnest role I've had in that. I kind of got to be a fly on the wall for the global organization, running strategy and, and special projects for the CEO. So a uh, wide-ranging set of opportunities that gave me a good experience for my current role where we're advising customers on how they can leverage Microsoft and cloud technologies to transform their business. So uh, that's awesome. So I, and I, I was just taking a look at Gates and it uh, looks like you, got, you literally got your hands dirty uh, doing, some, yeah. doing some stuff there. And uh, so tell, I mean, tell me about a little bit about the business. I mean, going from IT, business development, chief of staff, like it seemed like it was, it was really more like a leadership development program over the course of the 14 years that you were there. Like what? What were some of the the shifts that you saw, like, in the business? Because and you were actually talking to operations folks, and you were talking to people in sales and executive leaders there. What were the different, I guess, trends or different perspectives across those three different areas that you noticed uh, were out either out of whack or that were super interesting to you? Yeah. So the the interesting thing there, I'll just start with the career trajectory because when I joined Gates, I had finished a master's degree in information systems, very focused on technology. And I'd see these people inside Gates go from being a controller to a head of sales and in a factory. And I was kind of thinking, what are these people doing with their career here? Do they have like no plan? Like they're all over yeah. the place. Um, until I got the opportunity to be on that. And it was a leadership development program where they did um, move you from role to role to try to give you those broad experiences so that 
when you one day became a, whether it was a, a head of a, a geographic organization or a cross-functional organization, whatever it was, you understood the business. So it was interesting because before that I thought people were crazy. Then I got the opportunity and was like, wow, how can you, know, you miss this type of opportunity to be able to get those wide ranging experiences? Um, but back to your question in terms of the shifts we saw, that that's why today it's interesting to me where we're at with cloud technologies because back, say, when I was in the operations at Gates, we were going through what we called Gates production system, which basically everybody's copied Toyota production system and just given their own company name to it. But um, we were in the midst of that transformation, right? And you you truly went in from the ground floor and reorganized your operations, rethought how you did things, and studied the best ways to do them. So you had these great gains in the late 90s. Again, if you look back, the U.S. was seeing very high productivity gains in the economy. And that's stalled over the last few years, maybe even decade or more. And that's where in my current role in manufacturing with cloud, it, it really has created this new wave of productivity enhancement. So back in the day when I was working, doing Kaizen events inside a factory, you were getting double digit gains. Most of that's died out. Most manufacturers are struggling to see single digit gains of productivity and in a competitive world, that's difficult to, to sustain your business if you're not rapidly improving. So for me, one of the big trends that, that we're seeing now is kind of the next wave of innovation for manufacturers to go after those double-digit changes. Um, a second one you asked about maybe sales and some of the other functional areas. So the, the last four years that I was at Gates, I spent time in Microsoft now going through a similar transformation where, uh, especially on our belt business at Gates, it was very similar to the technology space at Microsoft where you're talking speeds and feeds and the greatest new performing belt, but you hit a, a wall at some point where better performance doesn't necessarily warrant the cost. And so I spent four years building out a program of how do we go after the customers where they're at and help them solve their problems using our products. So today at Microsoft, we're going through that shift, right? Moving from a very product focused company in the past to trying like, what my team does is how do I get in the shoes of my customer, regardless of what technology they may need, and understand is it quality, is it operational performance improvement, is it speed to market, what are the key drivers, and do we have the capabilities in our arsenal to be able to help them achieve those. So I think those experiences that I had while we're talking about different scenarios in terms of how we solve those problems, it's similar challenges. And I, I, it's, it's awesome to hear that because one, one would say, wow, that's a crazy career. There's, there's so many things that you did. But at the same time, like going back to your point, I see you engaging with some of the, the executive level uh, customers that we have, but it's all encompassing. You, you have so many different pieces of the conversation coming together. And I think your team is really good at that, but solutioning uh, all those different pieces. So I guess from a some of the businesses that you're talking to today, a lot of, like, like you said, a lot of folks are really concerned about these razor thin margins. You have globalization, you have this entire uh, really weird um, trade deficit tariff 
battle that's going on, whether we want, we, we don't want to get political, but there's a lot of things going on there. So immediately when you come into some of these executive conversations, like what's on the heart and minds of most of these folks you're talking to when you first start to engage with them? I think ultimately it's about business performance, right? Whether it's operational improvements. So how do we make the product that we're making at a more efficient cost base or it's on the transformation front, right? So in this digital world, as I think everyone's heard Satya say, right, where every company is going to be a software company. So in the past, manufacturers focused on how do we make the product most efficiently versus in the future. And you see it in the automotive space, right? The Ford, GM, these guys spending billions of dollars on these startups because the game has completely changed. When you move from, I'm going to make my car most efficiently to sell to you versus what if people don't buy cars anymore and they just subscribe to a service where a car shows up and, and they just rent a car for the time being that drives them where they're, they're going to and from. And so the conversations we're having with the executives is in this time of transformation and rapid change, how do they adopt their business model in light of those types of circumstances, right? So, and manufacturers is also interesting because it's challenging. You look at the retail space and I think you see a much more rapid move to cloud technologies because they face a real existential threat that they may go out of business next year. Right? You look at the number of retailers that have gone that have gone out of business. So manufacturing, I think, is in this interesting period where the goal of a manufacturer is to set something up and run it over and over and over and don't touch it if it's not broken, right? And so you pair that with the rapid change where three engineers from Apple can pop out and create a, a nest and threaten someone like a Honeywell that's owned that business for a hundred years. For me, the conversations that we're having with those executives is how do you find that right balance of we got we need to move quickly to transform our business, but at the same time we can't ruin our business or disrupt it or provide a, a lower quality product trying new things. So typically, it's a balance across those types of scenarios. And and we've had these discussions before. I think you know we connected over it uh, last summer at, at Microsoft's big sales conference, technology conference. And we, we talked about Industry 4.0. And uh, I've, I've heard so many different variations of Industry 4.0, even Industry 4.0, Industry 40, all, different ways of even saying it. So like, mm-hmm. in terms of the, the actual definition, like what, what does that mean to you when you describe what, what that is? Yeah, so for those that may not have the history on why it's Industry 4.0, um, it kind of comes from early when you first had power introduced and, and you had kind of this big transformation of how products were made. It, you know, before that, it was maybe a guy with a workshop making things. You introduce power and all of a sudden you change the, the way you can make product because you can use power to do things differently. Then you move to Industry 2.0 with Henry Ford and autom- or factory structures to where you have repetitive tasks and you you kind of made things faster and more efficiently. The third 
iteration of industry 3.0 was really when you started to introduce computers and robotics and those types of things into the factory. And so for industry 4.0, it's, it's now this merging, again, you'll see different definitions, but kind of this merging now of cloud-based technologies, automation, along with the worker, right? And so it's this, the, the reason you see it as Industry 4.0 is really it's when you look across the last 100 plus years of manufacturing, what were those big tipping points that drastically changed the methodology that manufacturers were using to do what they do? So for me, Industry 4.0 encompasses a number of things, but really it's around how do you now take these new technologies, whether it's that product transformation or operational transformation, and how do you leverage those to create a whole new model for how you operate your business? Um, so that, and, and you will see permeations, right? Like I talked to a lot of customers that have kind of taken that on and they call it maybe factory 2.0 for them because they've got the current version of things that they've done. Like Gates is still making V-belts largely the way it did made them almost a hundred years ago. Right. And so some companies may be on version 10 of their factory iteration. Others may be on 2.0, but it's certainly out there in the mainstream media with all the think tanks in terms of what industry 4.0 really is and how manufacturers can use that to leap from forward in their businesses. I, I like how you were talking about business model creation and how you were making some comparisons with the retail industry. Uh, just, just for me and some of the things that we, we we're always hearing about either manufacturing, whether or not that's a, there's because there's a big push domestically for uh, businesses in the United States to be buying U.S. products. Um, but that's been on the headlines a lot, and obviously retail because there's just so much disruption to like you were saying. And um, I'm just looking at this PwC Global Industry 4.0 survey report, and I was just taking some notes on it. And it was talking about um, some three very digitally indexed reasons um, why uh, a lot of these big manufacturers were having issues moving into this, this transformation horizon. And number one was the lack of digital culture and training. Another one was unclear economic benefit. And another was insufficient talent. And then I was just at this industry of things, USA World conference this last Friday in San Diego. And I had a lot of folks uh, approaching me and asking me, look, like we have all these, I mean, the, the problems were so complex. We have all these different machines. We don't know how to digitize them. We need a strategy ASAP. Uh, we don't have a cloud strategy. We don't really have an automation strategy. We have workers that we need to displace. Executive level pressure is coming down. They want us to automate more. And it seemed like everyone lacked one of those three things and, and really lacked a forward-thinking strategy. I mean, where do you even get started when you start talking to a customer? Like, What does that even look like? Like Day one, you come in, talk to a customer. Like, What is on your mind in terms of how you could help them transform? Sure. So I think, so those are interesting and they, they to me, kind of span when you think about the people issues, that's probably a macro level issue that we deal with over the next 10, 20, 30 years, right? When you think about where automation might go, self-driving cars, whatever. So today we don't, I don't see that as as much of a problem necessarily that manufacturers are struggling with today. But 
to your question about where do they start, what's the outcomes, that to me is the biggest challenge, right? So again, in other spaces, whether it be retail or you look at what Netflix has done to the entertainment industry, there's very clear paths that have already formed, right, over years and maybe even decades in some cases. So with manufacturing, it is challenging because there aren't as many clear paths for what does it mean to be successful in a digital age. So typically top of mind and where we start and one of the models our team uses, which I think my former manager, Steve Hanna, who was a CIO for for decades, actually, uh, think big, start small, go fast. And so usually when we're working with customers, we're trying to move quickly but not try to overthink things because it can, you can get stuck in analysis paralysis or kind of POC um, purgatory where you don't know what the outcomes are. You're playing around with the technology, but you're not quickly moving towards measurable impacts. So when we're working with our customers and we're working with executives to define what does digital mean for them, it follows that model. You want to think big. In 10 years, our business is going to be completely transformed and we're no longer just going to provide products to our customers. We're going to have a whole suite of services. So you definitely want to have a vision of where you're headed, but you can't get stuck trying to build the 10-year future now, right? You just need to be able to take action, iterate fast, fail fast. You obviously hear that a lot in Silicon Valley companies. Just moving quickly, trying things, and iterating. And that's where we found the most success, where a customer is willing to just take three or four projects, move quickly, understand whether they're going to actually have potential impact. If they are, great, take them forward, turn it into a a full-blown project and initiative. If they're not, sweep them away, move on to the next thing. So that's kind of the frame with which we're working with our customers to, to manage through this time of disruption. And, and then at the granular level, like, is it when you, when you come in and, and this is very consulting, like like the business flow and the, and the way that you're kind of compartmentalizing this, but if folks, folks need want to go fast and they want to start soon um, and, and they want to, they want to, you know, eat the elephant in small bites I mean, where do you even choose where to start? You know, like I, it seems like a lot of people are confused. Like, where do I even start? I have machines, I have workers, I have output, I have customers. Do you work to bring all those things in at once? Or do you tackle problems by priority? Do you say, hey, you have a bunch of uh, machines that are um, costing too much to maintain. So let's go after that so we can reduce your costs. Do you say, hey, customer, do you want to concentrate on um, trying to attract more customers. So let's look at your marketing schemes. Like what is that, what does that discussion look like for you? Sure. I think the easiest place that we're typically honing in on is data, right? So customers obviously have their objectives. They know their cost savings goal or productivity improvement goals. And those things can give us a good framework for how to go after this challenge and opportunity but ultimately it comes down to data. Do we have data? Where does it exist? Are we doing anything with it? Do we have the right length and the history of data to be able to do something meaningful with? But for you, obviously working in the data space, you'd appreciate this. 
most of our manufacturers are producing terabytes of data, maybe even weekly or monthly, if not certainly annually. So they've got this huge asset that they've never utilized, right? So when you think about, say, you're running millions of hours of production time on equipment, and you've got all this data that no one's ever been able to take and say, hey, we didn't realize that at step two, we were getting data signals that were causing failures at step seven. And we're responding at step seven to the problem that we're having, but we didn't realize we've got this rich river of data that we can mine and understand and do the predictive modeling. So for me, usually our conversation with the customer start at the data estate. Right? Do you have the data? If you do, is it usable? If not, how do we get it in a usable state? So you kind of line up what data do we have against what the company's priorities are, and it usually gives you a fairly rich set of opportunities to evaluate and go after. So I, I really, I, obviously, I really enjoy that you talk about data because that's, that's like my space, which I love talking about. Um, and then I mean, literally, I'm, I'm reading some more of these, uh, these reports. Another one from PwC, Emerging Technology, How Industry 4.0 uh, Changes Business. It talks about the challenges with uh, the Internet of Things adoption related to data. And it gives these five different challenges. It's data quality, data security and privacy, data standards, managing data volumes, and cost. For you, what is the biggest challenge that you're seeing in terms of how some of these businesses are manipulating or harnessing the richness of their data? Honestly, just the unknown is usually the biggest problem we face, right? So they've got reams of data, but trying to actually get to understanding is there value in that data? And if so, where does it exist? Usually that's the biggest challenge we have. It's not the lack of data is usually not a problem because they're producing data. They're just not doing anything with it. But we're working with a semiconductor manufacturer now that's literally measuring in the sub millisecond level data streams coming off of 47 steps in a manufacturing process, right? So it's kind of, it's almost overwhelming to even know where to start in that scenario. Because too much data can create noise, but you definitely need more data to be able to actually get value and start to do predictive modeling. So usually it's, it, it's just kind of this volume and chaos of data and understanding where do we even start with this problem. And it, it sounds like and I've been on some of these, uh, these meetings, calls, uh, events with you where we're, we're talking about this. And I think your team has helped us. Uh, uh, quite a bit out here in the Southwest. And I like how you spoke about, hey, it's taking the business values, taking the business goals that the company has, mission objectives, and then you're mapping that to the data that they have to create some realities in the short term. And I think the process there is just to show some, some quick wins, showing some things that will work, and then you kind of organically grow from those different MVPs or use cases or pilots, whatever you want to call them. But the idea is to just really harness the richness of that data to your point, show that this new era of transformation is working. And that way it could start to bleed across the rest of the business and continue to create value. Is that really 
what works the best in your opinion? Yeah, usually because one of the other challenges that we faced aside from having too much data, not knowing to go where to go with it is also the skill sets in manufacturers, Mm -hmm. right? Because manufacturing tends to be heavily focused on design engineers, product development engineers, certainly a strong sales force. Many manufacturers didn't necessarily have this, every company is going to be a software company mindset, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the challenges in, in getting through this and attaching it to business value is we do spend a lot of time helping develop our customer skill sets. More and more of them are starting to hire data scientists, um, with skills and the ability to, to use machine learning, artificial intelligence type of tools, but many of them didn't have that skill set. So that, to, to your question, that, that's actually the, probably the bigger challenge is how do we help them come along this journey, build their skill sets out to where we can solve a particular problem with the POC, but then being able to help them go repeat that inside their business. And, and you're touching another, another really important part. And I think Microsoft does this well, but I'd like to, I'd like to hear your unbiased uh, approach. So it sounds like there's a couple different pieces here that need to come into play. It's, you have to understand the, the, the company's mission objectives, its goals. You have to have uh, some relevant data or understand how to, how to reallocate uh, the value of some of that data that's they're really not doing much with today you're having to provide some training and really trying to help them figure out their tooling and be successful with the tooling. Uh, but at the same time, really upskill some of their people and provide guidance and, and leadership and how they're upskilling their people. So it, it's, it's really a true, a true partnership that you're talking about here. Yeah. So when it's successful, when we help a customer transform their business, it's definitely not transactional. You're not going to be successful in doing what we're doing in a transactional state, right? If you just want to come and buy some computer, some servers, or some storage from us, that's fine. But we've, in my current team, as an example, I've got a national team of architects as well as business um, decision maker type of people sitting on our team that have come from those business decision maker roles like I did at a manufacturer who've lived in the shoes of those customers. The best value our customers get from our team is when we truly engage. I've got a couple of customers, one that, that I mentioned that's transforming from selling products to selling products plus a SaaS solution. We've been at it with them for 18 months now. Right, and where we hold weekly tech talks with them, and we help guide them on their architecture, because they live in their own little world. Yet we get the opportunity and the experience across dozens, if not hundreds, of customers, and you know we can understand and see where the trends are emerging, the best practices, what's working and what's not working. So it's definitely when we're successful, it's going to be where a customer commits to partnering with us and fully leverages their team. Because if you look at any given large Microsoft customer, you know there's probably 30 to 50 people that may be available to help support that customer. And the customers that are having the most success making that transformation to a digital business are taking full advantage of those resources that are available to them. 
So, and can, can you, and for me, I've had some exposure, but you, you have some national exposure. Um, you, you are a part of a, a much bigger team. You're, you're tackling some of these problems on, head on every single day. Can you talk about what a successful team alignment looks like for your team? So I know there's folks, there's data scientists, there's architects, there's BDM type folks you mentioned. What does that alignment look like with a customer alignment? And that could, that could look like anything that works. What do you think the best alignment looks like for those two teams when they combine for a, for a successful mission? Sure. I think the first and most important thing, bar none, is having an a executive sponsor at the customer. Someone that has accountability for whether it's a sales goal or a productivity improvement goal or a product launch goal or manufacturing quality, whatever the scenario is, you need an executive sponsor that owns some sort of a measurable outcome, right? So that's the first and most important thing. If you have that, then they can help drive the customer's action because again, we have a lot of resources and you know, seeing this over the last couple of years, occasionally we'll get very great sponsorship or support from uh, call it a hobbyist in IT that's interested in IoT or predictive maintenance, um, and they're interested in maybe personally learning it or figuring out if there might be an application so they can add value to their business. And that's important, but more often than not, when we end up in programs like that, they tend to spin and they don't end up with legs, right? We end up with these POCs that are cool, have actually proven value, but then don't go anywhere. And that's not useful for our customers. That's not a good use of our time just because we're not able to deliver a specific measurable value for our customers. So if we can have a sponsor at a customer, they can get the right resources aligned. That's when we're going to be successful because we've got the, it's not a lack of technology or skill set or people that we can apply to the problem. It's a lack of the ability to get past the testing and the, the evaluation of it and getting it into production where that customer is seeing a, a 10% cost savings or a 50% increased um, quality control because they're doing AI to, to better monitor and predict potential quality issues. So to me, that's number one. It's we, you know, again, there's a number of people from the local Microsoft account team, our national team, we've got other experts in the particular, whether it be machine learning or IoT or whatever, we can apply all of those resources, but we've got to have a customer that truly is trying to get to a production ready outcome so that they can see the impact in their business. Got it. So it, it all comes down to really to business drivers. Um, and, and we're, and we're seeing that that's, exa- I mean, it's this, this, this entire story is analogous to what we're seeing um, in the in the field that I work specifically in, in data and, AI, and artificial intelligence, it's all about the business drivers. It's all about not the hot technology and what people are talking about, but how do you take the most complicated and toughest business problems that you have and and rationalize a solution based upon some of the technologies we have and the teaming and uh, they sound very alike. So I'm thinking about several handfuls of customers in, in the manufacturing, and I specifically work on manufacturing customers. Um, so this is a topic I, I love talking about, but there's there's many of them that just haven't figured it out, Greg. And it, it seems like I would love to hear a story from you 
if you have one about a, a customer that wasn't doing well or wasn't figuring out where their place was in this digital era innovation economy. And something happened in that cycle, whether they had a new CEO, whether um, they added some new folks to the team. Can you, can you talk to us about a time that you remember where something wasn't going the way the customer wanted and something happened that completely reshifted the project into success? It's a good question. I guess, go, I guess going from problem to opportunity. So a couple of examples, and I didn't work on them personally, but trying to keep it to um, customer approved stories. If you look at something like J-Bill, right, who they're one of our leading customers in the manufacturing space that have been able to take and leverage our technology, some of it on the bleeding edge even, when you think about the the vision capabilities and some of the recent case studies and stories that we've seen where they're taking vision and using uh, our vision cognitive services to predict quality and reliability of, of products. So that's an example of where that customer is in a very, very low margin business as a contract manufacturer. They face incredible, incredible competitive threats. So they have to be on the edge in terms of driving productivity down because it, you know, it can mean the survival of their company in, in many um, aspects. So I think that's one, if you look at some of the case studies where over, I want to say probably even over the last five years where they partnered with Microsoft, they certainly had their bumps and trials and tribulations as they've gone through that process, but they are leveraging Microsoft technologies and they're seeing the benefits in quality improvement, energy reduction and sustainability, which is another major factor that manufacturers are looking at. Um, improve profitability. So I think <clears throat> that's a good example. And you can look at those case studies and, and kind of trace what Jabil's done to help make their business uh, more successful as a result of really trying things and proving them out, failing fast, but then moving on to the next opportunity. Got it. Now I'll, I'll go ahead and I'll put that case study, the Jabil case studies. It's a really good one. I'll put it in the show notes for folks to take a look at. What about a big learning that you've had in the last six months, Greg? Big learning. Um, I guess one, and we hear it a lot inside Microsoft is the growth mindset and, and having a inclusive culture, a diverse and inclusive culture, right? And, that, and that's one that's actually, I, I've always thought, oh, I'm inclusive and, you know, I'm, um, open-minded, but it is kind of interesting. I was watching the movie. So both of my kids are adopted and, and we adopted both of them from Ukraine um, a number of years ago, 2001 and 2004. And it's just kind of funny in, and this is just, I was watching a, the movie instant family with Mark Wahlberg this weekend. And it's funny because until you're in that community and kind of experience it, you would never even understand it. So one of the things that we learned very quickly when we started looking at adopted, someone that hasn't adopted or maybe hasn't been around adoption, will they'll say something about your real kids or your real parents, right? And it's, it's kind of interesting because as a non-adoptive parent, you wouldn't think much about it. Mm -hmm. But for a kid to, for our daughter, for example, was six months old when we adopted her, right? So we are her real parents, right? We're her only parents. 
Mm-hmm. And so it's funny when you think about this diversity and inclusion and just understanding others' perspectives. Um, that's not something you would have ever thought about or I would have ever thought about um, until I started looking at adopting and reading books and understanding, well, a birth parent or a blood parent is probably the appropriate way to say that versus a real parent. And so to your question, I guess a learning recently is just um, that kind of hit home because I've been thinking a lot about the diversity inclusion because Microsoft's obviously taking us through a lot of training and doing a lot of the training in the, the management training in my new role. And it, that and this weekend when I watch it, it made me step back and think, what situations or areas am I going in thinking I, I understand or I have a perspective, again, with manufacturers because all their businesses are different, and so for me, one of the learnings and one of the things I'm focused on now, just based on where I'm at in my new role and, and working with the national team, is am I making assumptions or am I not hearing things in the context that someone's saying things to me or sharing with me? So I guess if I had to say one learning, that's it, right? Just taking a step back and, and really letting it settle in on the, the inclusion components and making sure that I'm listening, listening and truly hearing. That's awesome, Greg. I'm really happy that you shared that. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think about the same thing every day, but it's it's great that you have like an actual story, like an actual, like with your adopted kids, like you can pinpoint what that looks like and then you can layer that into the other things that you do from day to day and even make those comparisons, which is awesome, which um, I think you're lucky to be able to have that. I think it, and it, if people that don't have that, it's probably pretty difficult to be this thing called inclusivity, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. uh, So we're about to wrap up and I wanted to ask you if you could be any sci-fi movie character, who would you be? Sci-fi movie character. That's a good one. Challenging. Because the only thing that comes to mind is maybe like Transformers. I grew up watching Transformers and have loved the the movie series so i don't know maybe optimus prime so that i could <laughs> right, change, my, change my shape when necessary to meet the the current needs <laughs> that's awesome man optimus prime all right all right well cool so um i'm gonna post some of this information in the show notes and uh folks would probably love to get a hold of you what's the best way to get a hold of you Probably LinkedIn. I'm obviously very active on LinkedIn. So if you look for Greg Vigil on LinkedIn, I think it's the linkedin.com slash in slash Greg J. Vigil. They can find me there and my contact info is there. Okay. All right. So I'll, I'll post that. I'll post that on the show notes and uh, appreciate you joining us, Greg. This was fun and um, glad to be working with you and hopefully you, uh, take on some new learnings this year as well and have some success with some of these businesses you're trying to transform. Same for you. It's always push the boundaries. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening today and having some fun with us on the podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please follow me on LinkedIn or at DRUSS Network, D-R-U-S-S Network on Twitter or Instagram. And you can also reach out to me anytime via email at Derek at thedatabinge.com. The Data Binge podcast is a personal thought form where we share knowledge and ideas. Views and opinions expressed here do not reflect those of my employer, Microsoft. I really hope you enjoyed. Thanks a lot.